Welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. Well, hi, I'm Jay. <laughs> Jay and I just keep referencing this TikTok of a of a cat who meows in a way that sounds like a southern drawl of a like lady saying, "Well, hi." <laughs> it's the best thing that exists. It's really, really cute. You should go look it up. It's on YouTube if you don't want to download TikTok, which I don't. Yes, yes. So, Jane, I have something to tell you. <gasps> Last week. I was editing the show, and when I said I'm Sarah, instead of it, instead of hearing you say I'm Jane, I heard like a screeching noise, <gasps> like unlike anything I've ever heard before. I could not think of something that naturally made the sound. I can play it for you later. It was so scary a and so terrifying. So that in the episode, I had to cut it so that it said, I'm Sarah, and we have a special guest today. And I just <gasps> cut out you saying, and I'm Jane, because it didn't exist. So I, I want to apologize, because you were there, <laughs> um, even though you didn't introduce yourself. But it was, it, was, there. it was so weird. It was like, I'm Sarah. Wow! <laughs> and then it, it was me saying, and we have a special guest this week. <laughs> So I just wanted to share that with you. It was so super weird. So I didn't, I, yes, Jane last week did say, and I'm Jane. And yes, I did edit it out. (laughs) Not because I felt particularly spiteful or I was mad at her. We weren't fighting. We weren't fighting. Uh, It was just, it didn't, you couldn't hear, you couldn't even hear your voice. It didn't even sound like your voice. Mm. So knowing all that, how are you doing? pluck strings apparently. Oh, yeah. The ghost (laughs) in our apartment plucked Jane's ukulele string. It was very scary. It was very scary. I went in Sarah's bed for like an hour after that to being like, I can't be alone. Yes. <laughs> she did. She did. I kept her company. And now doors are opening and closing. It's all, mm-hmm. getting, it's all getting scary here. The shower was acting weird when I was in the shower a few minutes ago. It was like sputtering in a way I've never seen it before. Oh, weird. Yeah, it was weird. We also just keep finding items that we have no explanation for. I think that we are being led on a hunt to solve a mystery. I do. Mm. I think we are meant to solve this ghost's murder or figure out how they died. We've gotten so many clues. Yeah. A pair of shoes, a sweater, a towel, a towel that says Crosby on it, even though none of us know anyone named Crosby. No, none. Um, no one named Crosby. Um, yeah. Lots of weird stuff. Lots and lots of weird stuff in this house. So how are you doing? Oh, um, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I'm finally like I feeling like I'm in the late stages of my illness, mm-hmm. you know? Like I feel like I have a light cold now finally. That's good. Which I wanted to die last weekend. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. That would that really sucked. And it, it, it was me to be in the car. You were an angel for taking care. Well, both drives on the way to Cambridge and on the way back, I started off feeling like fine and good and then mm-hmm. I didn't even notice myself feeling as bad as I did. And then we got to the destinations and then I was like, oh, I need to, I need to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fair. You went to bed when we got back from Boston. You went to bed at like 630. <laughs> I took NyQuil at six o'clock and was like, all right, this is all I can do. Y'all bye. <laughs> yeah. We got home at five. Like <laughs> she really was like, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. I, well, I Jane, was, is, Jane is leaving the group chat. <laughs> I was trying to be a person. I was sitting on the couch with our roommate, Kelsey, and I, Literally just kept like leaning over on my hand and closing my eyes. And Kelsey was like, Jane, do this in your bed. Just go to bed. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You, you're an adult. You can do that. <laughs> I can't. Anyway, Sarah, how are you? 
I wasn't even sitting here waiting for you to say, how are you? I was like, what are we going to talk about next? <laughs> oh, me. We're going to talk about me. Mm-hmm. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I know. I'm fine. I, I think coming back to work has really kicked me in the butt yeah. a little bit. Like, it was it was really hard yeah. coming back to work from the break. And doing my first full week was good. Like, it felt good. But, boy, was I tired. On Friday night, I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> both nights this weekend i went to bed at 11 like i'm not i'm just not a stay up until two take advantage of the weekend type person i'm like "Mm, i think i'm gonna go to bed i usually am and i could not stay up last night really or the night or the night before yeah just like "Mm." i've been yeah i've been going to bed at my normal time as as i would during the week the work week and waking up at the time i do for work which is probably better for you you know consistently wake up at the same time but um kelsey doesn't know this yet but after this her and i are going to uh, the bite lip lab in new york and we're going to custom make mm-hmm. our own lip gloss lipsticks not lip glosses lipsticks mm-hmm. and i'm very excited i'm thinking about i want to do a nude lipstick so i'm just thinking about how i'm gonna do Ooh. that and what color i want um um it'll be my lipstick of 2020 great so you know defining my year with a nice <laughs> nude lip <laughs> that's fun yeah so i'm really i'm really excited to do that today and i had a birthday party yesterday which was a great time and we did an escape the room which i love (laughs) um and next weekend i'm gonna be in florida visiting philippa which is so so fun so i have a lot to look forward to in the next like seven days you do um and we have a long weekend next weekend so we do that'll be that'll be lovely mm-hmm. so i have a lot to look forward to which is good but i am i am definitely tired the yeah. beginning of the year is always like Ugh. every january feels so stressful because it's like you're piling up all these expectations mm-hmm. of resolutions and it's the it's the beginning of the new year so you keep forgetting to write the new year when you write the date <laughs> <laughs> at least that's what i'm going through um so there's just a lot happening but it's all good stuff. All good stuff. And I'm excited to hear more about Marilyn Monroe today. Thanks to Aaron giving oh, us Oh, yeah. This it was a good idea. I will say it's it's not a... It's kind of a downer of a story. Great. Love Mine's you, Aaron. downer, too. It's fascinating, but... All right. <gasps> Who was on Reddit this week? It was me. I'm, I'm ready. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, I wouldn't let you forget. Oh, my God. Me. I just had a panic. All right, here we go. <laughs> no, that would be mean of me if I was like, let's just let her figure it out. <laughs> I'm just not that person. <laughs> I'm more of a, did you do your Reddit segment? Jane, do your research. <laughs> she does text me like the day before being like, you know you're on Reddit, right? Yeah. <laughs> I always give you a warning. She's very helpful. Very good. Very good. Thank you for thinking it's helpful and not control freakish. No. No, no, no. You're nothing if not helpful. Oh, good. Which I know I sound very sarcastic. Yes, right you're shifting. You're like messing with your shirt, which like could be a tell for lying, but it, I know that you're not. It's just funny because you're like messing with your shirt, but no, as you adjust your shirt. No, no, no. No, Sarah takes care of me. Yeah, I try. I try. Mm-hmm. She's a good co host and roommate. Okay. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. Okay. The lady herself. The lady herself. I feel like she's ultimately um, been done an injustice and I will get into why. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's start with her early life. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was born on June 1st, 1926. 
She's mm-hmm. a Gemini. Oh. She was an American actress, model, and singer who is most famous for playing comedic blonde bombshell characters. She was one of the most popular sex symbols of the 1950s and 60s, mm-hmm. which we all know. We're we like, know I feel like she's such a, like Marilyn Monroe was just such a yeah, icon and a brand. And, a, and when you think of Marilyn Monroe, you have an immediate image that yeah, comes to mind. Of course. She was born and raised in Los Angeles. She spent most of her childhood in foster homes and an orphanage. Oh. Which I didn't know. I feel like I was like, I missed that part in Smash. I knew she didn't have a great relationship (laughs) with her mom. Everything I know about Marilyn Monroe comes from Smash. I'm not even being sarcastic. Like, that's so true. Uh, Honestly, same. Yeah. (laughs) And she got married at the very young age of 16. Uh Oh. To, um... Kind of a random guy. I don't even. I didn't even write down okay, his name. This wasn't Arthur Miller yet. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a, just a random, a random fella. <laughs> yeah. Um. She was discovered, interestingly enough, while she was working in a factory mm. as part of the war effort during World War Two. Cool. I know. Cool. Uh, a photographer saw her from the first motion picture unit and made her a successful pinup model. Oh. Which is important. She was a model before she was. An actress. an actress, yeah. But the work, her work as a pinup model, ultimately is kind of what got her discovered, mm-hmm. and that work led her to a film contract with 20th Century Fox and the Columbia Pictures. Mm-hmm. 20th Century Fox, Mamba. <laughs> I can't wait to reference Smash songs. I know, I know. After a series of minor film roles, she signed a new contract with Fox in late 1950. Mm-hmm. And over the next two years, that's when her acting career really took off. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had roles in a bunch of big comedies. One that I hadn't even really heard of, but I'm sure were big. Monkey Business, Don't Bother to Knock. Monkey Business, I've heard of. I haven't heard of Don't Bother to Knock. She was in um, All About Eve, which is a very famous Betty oh. Davis movie. Um and she was like a minor character in it. But I remember yeah. watching it with my mom and her being like, guess who that is? Pointing at like a random character. Yeah. I was like, who? She goes, that's Marilyn Monroe. It's like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Oh, and of course, how can I not mention her uh, birth name? Norma Jean Mortensen. Oh, I've never learned that. Is her real name. Goodbye, Norma Jean. Yeah. Back to the topic at hand. So there was a big scandal after her first couple of movies because it was revealed that during her time as a pinup model, she had posed nude. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And everyone was worried that it would, like, ruin her career. Mm-hmm. But it actually made her more famous and what? made people want to see her movies even more because there was, like, a buzz around her. And this, yeah. Um, I'm sure men were like, oh, I want to go see this lady. Um, <laughs> but also, like, look up for her. Good for, for her, like, you know? strutting her stuff. Exactly. Be proud. In 1953, she uh, got leading roles in the films Niagara, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Mm -hmm. How to Marry a Millionaire. And these films really cemented her as like the the like dumb, sexy blonde Mm -hmm. type of character. Mm -hmm. And she started feeling um, just unhappy with that in general. She thought she was kind of being pigeonholed into very specific character types Mm -hmm. and she didn't like being typecast and she felt like she was being underpaid for the films that she was being a part of Mm -hmm. so she was having some real issues with fox as a studio and the studio actually ended up suspending her in 1954 because she refused to be part of one of their movies oh Mm -hmm. Uh, but she did return in 1955 to star in the seven-year itch 
which mm-hmm. was one of her biggest box office successes. Yeah. But in her time off before Fox finally brought her back, like being like, fine, we'll pay you more and we'll mm-hmm. give you more creative control. She started her own her own film studio. Oh, good for her. And spent a lot of time studying acting. She worked on method acting at the actor's studio. Uh, she spent, you know, a lot of time improving her craft. Yeah. As we say in theater school. <laughs> as we say in the business. <laughs> Like I said, in 1955, Fox finally offered her a better contract. Good for And we're like, okay, we'll let you have creative control. We'll pay you what you deserve, yada, yada. And following this time, though, the work that she created after that, after that whole debacle, was the work that is considered her best work critically. Mm -hmm. She was praised for her role in Bus Stop in 1956. Uh, she made her first independent project called The Prince and the Showgirl in 1957. Mm -hmm. And she won the Golden Globe for Best Actress for Some Like It Hot. Oh. I know, which is the movie that I feel like I most remember her for. That and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Oh, I didn't really watch Gentlemen Prefer Blondes a lot. But my brother loved Some Like It Hot, and we watched that a lot when, we were, when yeah, I was growing up. And her last completed film uh, was Misfits, which she made in 1961. Mm-hmm. Now, she had a lot of trouble in her personal life, which received a lot of public attention. Mm-hmm. She was very much under a microscope. She struggled with addiction, depression, anxiety. She was married several times. She had three. Ma- she was married three times. The second two were to Joe DiMaggio and Arthur Miller, and both of those marriages were highly publicized. Yeah, uh, received a lot of public attention, and both ended in divorce, which is hard. Yeah, <laughs> so things were not easy for her. Um, yeah. and she died unexpectedly on August fourth of nineteen sixty two. My birthday. Oh. I know. Maybe yeah. Reincarnation of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, oh she was gosh. 36, which is so young. Oh, that's so young. I know. I, I was didn't like, even think about that that's how young she was. <laughs> and she was like in the height of her career. Like right. she was making amazing work, like the best movies of her career. Right. It's, it's very tragic. And I will, I'd like to put a little bit of a content warning on this because we will be discussing suicide. Yeah. Just Content a, warning for suicide. Yeah. She, the official cause of her death was an overdose of barbiturates. A barbiturates. I don't know exactly how. I feel like I've heard oh, no. barbiturates. Yeah. But there's an R in this word. It was an overdose. Yeah. <laughs> she overdosed. <laughs> it was ruled a probable suicide. Uh, during her final months, she lived uh, at 12305 Fifth Helena Drive mm-hmm. in Brentwood, Los Angeles. And her housekeeper was staying overnight the evening of Saturday the 4th. Mm-hmm. And she woke up at 3 a.m. on Saturday the, on Sunday the 5th and just had a feeling that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. So she went to check on Marilyn and she saw that the light was on from under the bedroom door. Mm-hmm. But the door was locked and Marilyn Monroe was not responding. Mm-hmm. So she called Marilyn's psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson, who arrived very shortly and broke into the bedroom through the window and found Monroe dead on the bed and marilyn monroe's physician was called um dr hyman engelberg and he arrived around 3 50 a.m and pronounced her dead at the scene and at 4 25 a.m they called the lapd Mm -hmm. now at first that made me feel a little suspicious but i feel like that's not insane when you get there and you realize yeah especially like like, we have to think about 1950s and 60s crime and like criminal procedures they were so different from what it is now like that doesn't 
that doesn't strike me as terribly odd. I mean, a doctor's the already personal... there. What are the authorities right. going to do? Right. That they called their personal doctor first, especially with someone that high profile. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought it was interesting that they called the psychiatrist first and then the medical doctor. Probably the the reason the thought process was that the housekeeper thought maybe like she hadn't already taken her own life, but she was mm. thinking about it. So the psychiatrist could come and like talk her yeah, out of it. That's good. That's a good thought process. The uh, study of her body found that she had died between 8.30 and 10.30 p.m. the previous night on the 4th. Okay. So even though like she was discovered after midnight on the 5th, she had died before midnight on the 4th. Toxicology showed that the cause of death was acute barbiturate poisoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were empty medicine bottles found next to her bed. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of open and shut. Not that they didn't investigate, but those were the two biggest pieces of evidence. Yeah. The possibility of an accidental overdose was ruled out because the dosages found in her body were several times over the lethal limit. Mm. The L.A. County Coroner's Office brought the L.A. Suicide Prevention Team in to help them investigate. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought in experts on the topic of suicide and mm-hmm. like had them look at everything to help them strengthen their case. Monroe's doctor said that she had been prone to severe fears and frequent depressions with abrupt and unpredictable mood changes and that she had overdosed several times in the past Mm. um potentially or possibly intentionally yeah and due to all of this and the fact that there was no evidence of foul play the deputy coroner thomas noguchi classified her death as a probable suicide um which again is not like definitive but i think that probable suicide is yeah that's the where they left things and at the time, that was kind of left alone. It wasn't until a couple years later that people were kind of like, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, and that I, I'm going to say that I don't really believe any of the conspiracy theories. Okay. But here's where things go. We're about to get into decades of <laughs> men profiting off of this. Oh, geez. Which is so infuriating <laughs> That's to so me. annoying. So in 1964, this guy named Frank A. Capel, who was a anti-communist activist, self-published a pamphlet called The Strange Death of Marilyn Monroe, in which he claimed that her death was part of a communist conspiracy. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, He claimed that Monroe had had an affair with U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, Mm. and she took the affair too seriously and was threatening to cause a scandal, so Kennedy ordered her assassination to protect his career. Mm. Capel claimed that Kennedy and many people close to Monroe including her ex-husband, Arthur Miller, were all either communists or communist sympathizers. Right. That was his whole angle. I'm sure death of a salesman didn't really help that case. (laughs) 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 The thing about Capel is that so many people cite him in this, in their conspiracy theories, but his credibility, like, is pretty... Terrible. Terrible. Yeah. From my point of view. Because his really only source of information was this columnist named Walter Winchell. And Walter Winchell said that his, the source of a majority of his information was Frank Capel. Right. So Frank Capel is literally citing himself. Right. He's like, well, someone told Walter Winchell all this. You did. You did. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like literally because I said so. Yeah, exactly. However, the thing that gets really sketchy and the thing that I'm like, hmm, is that he worked with this guy named Jack Clemens, who was an LAPD sergeant, Uh and he was the first at the scene. 
when the police were called. He was the first to arrive there. Now, Jack Clemens is, I just wrote in my notes, is sketchy AF. And he later made a bunch of claims that he did not say when they were originally investigating. He said later on that Monroe's housekeeper was already washing the sheets when the police arrived, which I think is kind of strange, but also that seems natural. But also, why didn't you mention that before? Right. He also later said that when he arrived at the house, he had a quote unquote sixth sense. Mm. that something was off oh yeah because we can always trust men's sixth sense yeah like, you know what this they is say. terrible but if a woman tells me she has a sixth sense i'm like tell me more and if a man does it i'm like oh please <laughs> <laughs> which is awful of me but whatever yeah capel and clemens uh were both later linked to like larger political goals oh. um capel Excuse obviously me. was dedicating most of his life to this international communist conspiracy that he was trying to reveal mm-hmm. and clemens was a member of the police and fire research organization did i say research research <laughs> resource <laughs> police and fire research organization uh-huh, uh-huh. which sounds chill it was known as fipo it made me think of a series of unfortunate events oh yeah uh, anyway um the but VA. those guys were good guys yeah <laughs> These guys sought to expose subversive activities which threaten our American way of life. Oh, jeez. Which, your brain is correct. Yeah. <laughs> You're thinking things that are, are true. Uh, FIPO was very against the Kennedys, and they sent a bunch of letters to the FBI attempting to incriminate them. In 1964, uh, yeah, um, there was an FBI file that speculated an affair between Robert F. Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe, and it is believed that this speculation came from letters that FIPO sent them. Um, in 1965, both Capel and Clemens were indicted for conspiracy to libel by obtaining and distributing a false affidavit, claiming that Senator Thomas Kuchel had once been arrested for a homosexual act. Oh. Which was not true. Okay. Um, Even if it was, that's fine. <laughs> I know. Uh, the reason why they did this to the senator was because he had supported the 1964 civil rights act oh and they were trying to like get revenge on him by claiming that he had been arrested for a homosexual this whole thing is like a big frustrating eye roll you shouldn't be arrested for supporting the civil rights sexual yeah to don't call someone gay just because they're supporting civil rights yeah three it'd be fine if he was like uh, there's right there's so many things yeah Yes. Yeah. So that was the, uh, the initial BS, mostly involving Capel and Clemens. Uh-huh. Those annoying guys will be <laughs> cited guys. a lot later by other annoying guys. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1973, mm-hmm. skipping ahead a couple years, Norman Mailer published Marilyn, a biography, which all of them published biographies and probably made money off them. Like, That's really so annoying. Yeah. And despite not having any evidence to prove it, he repeated the claim that Monroe and Robert F. Kennedy were having an affair and speculated that she was killed by the FBI or the CIA. Um, but then later that year, he went on 60 Minutes and said that he made it all up just to sell books. Unsurprising. And that he really believed that it was an accidental suicide. Uh, nobody buy these books. No, but, I mean, it was years ago, but no one buy them anymore. Um, well, I don't know if they're still making money. Are they still alive? I feel like... I don't, I don't know. Well, Norman Mailer, I've heard that, that name before. Yeah, so I think he's 
Uh, I'll look it up. You can I think it. he's an author of other things. <laughs> um, two years later, this man named Robert F. Slatzer um, published The Life and Curious... He died in 2007, Norman Mailer. Uh, I guess R.I.P.? Yeah, R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> Robert F. Slatzer published The Life and Curious Death of Marilyn Monroe. Oh, no, 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 no. Not R.I.P. He stabbed his wife oh, with, his pen kni- with a pen knife and nearly killed her. No! Yeah. But he based this book off of Capel's pamphlet. And in addition to his assertion that Monroe was killed by Robert F. Kennedy, he claimed that he himself was married to Monroe for three days in Mexico in 1952 and that they were close friends until her death. Which is kind of like... What? Maybe it was true, but it also sounds to me like someone random being like, actually, I was her fourth husband. Like, come on. Right. In 1975, rock journalist Anthony Scaduto published an article in a soft poor magazine called We. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> I loved the flair there. Hui. <laughs> <laughs> I had to emphasize that it was like the O U I, not W E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did a very good job. Oui. <laughs> and the following year, he expanded it into a book called Who Killed Marilyn Monroe, which he published under the name Tony Schiacca. S C I A C C A. Schiacca? Schiacca. Yeah. His only source were were Slatzer, who wrote the, the book I talked about a second ago, and a private investigator named Milo Spiriglio. Mm. He repeated Slatzer's claims and alleged that she kept a red diary in which she kept secret political information that she learned from the Kennedys, and what? her house had been wiretapped by the surveillance expert Bernard Spindle on the orders of union leader Jimmy Hoffa. Oh. Trying to obtain information that he could use against the oh, Kennedys. Oh, I know about Jimmy Hoffa. Me too. <laughs> I haven't yet watched The Irishman, but... You've watched that BuzzFeed Unsolved episode? I have watched The Irishman. Let me tell you about Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he was wiretapping Marilyn Monroe's house to get information on the Kennedys? I honestly... That wouldn't surprise me. I don't think he murdered Marilyn Monroe, but he hated the Kennedys. Mm-hmm. Like, really hated the Kennedys. Why you're tapping Marilyn Monroe to get close to the Kennedys is some, is, is some of the more compelling evidence that mm. you have given me. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I thought you'd, like, roll your eyes and be like, of course they think that. Or, no, that wouldn't actually okay. shock me. In 1982, the PI that I talked about a second ago, Milo Spiriglio, published his own book, called Marilyn Monroe Murder Cover-Up, in which he claimed that Jimmy Hoffa and mob boss Sam Giancana murdered her. I'm looking up books about Marilyn Monroe written by women. All of these have been written by men. (laughs) I know. It's so annoying. And I didn't even write... Oh, Gloria Steinem wrote a book about Marilyn Monroe. Oh, nice. Okay, go read that. And Marilyn Monroe published her own book called My Story, which feels, like, very targeted. (laughs) Upon... The request of these two guys, um, Spiriglio and Slatzer, uh, the LAPE agreed to reopen the case to review evidence, mm-hmm. um, which, and they found no evidence to support any murder claims. Um, but they did this because in Spiriglio's book, he claimed that Lionel Grandison, who worked at the coroner's office, had claimed that Monroe's body had been covered in bruises that they had ignored and that he had seen the Red Diary. Mm-hmm. which allegedly existed and contained political secrets. Yeah. Um, all of this was found to be false. Okay. Uh, the wiretapping claim was also found to be false, which mm-hmm. I don't know how you could prove that 20 years later, but the most successful book 
uh, written about Marilyn Monroe conspiracy theories was by British journalist Anthony Summers, who wrote Goddess, The Secret Lives of Marilyn Monroe in 1985, which was the best selling of the Monroe yeah. conspiracy books. I want to say that this is really the last one that I wrote about, but this is going to go on for two decades. Like the article I was reading was like, and here's all the books written in the nineties by men about her. Here's yeah. all the books written in the two thousands by men about her. Like, Oh my gosh. It's so frustrating That's that so all of annoying. these men are profiting off of this woman's like sad ending. Yeah. It's, right. it's just, I find it very annoying. I find that to be like a morbid fascination, you know, and kind yeah. of like a, I think this is a really good example of like, this is a very good example of what our friend Taylor talks about a lot. That it's like men fetishizing almost yeah. the death of a woman. Yeah. Because. That's fair. Because regardless if it's their intention or not, they are gaining power and influence by writing these books. You know? Yeah. Like there is something they are gaining from this woman's death. And there's something weird that all of them are claiming that she was murdered, which sort of takes the agency away from her. Right. Right. Which you're instead right. of like this was like a sad, a very, very tragic choice that she made. Yeah. And you're, you're making it like, right. no, it wasn't her. Yeah. You're super right. In Anthony Summers book, uh, well, before that, he had written a book on the JFK assassination mm-hmm. and he had a bunch of conspiracy theories about that. But in his book, he claimed that Monroe was, quote unquote, psychotic and severely addicted to drugs and alcohol, which don't call your book goddess if you're just going to drag her, you know? He claimed that she had affairs with both JFK and Robert F. Kennedy, and that when Robert F. Kennedy uh, broke up with her, she threatened to go public with their affair. And so Kennedy and someone named Peter Lawford intentionally enabled her addictions to cause her death. He based, he claimed to have based all of his interviews, uh, all of this book on interviews he had with 650 people who knew Monroe. Oh. People have looked at the book since then, um, particularly these two people named Donald Spotto and Sarah Churchwell, who was the first female name I read besides Marilyn Monroe. Oh, my God. In this whole saga. Oh, my God. That's so annoying. And they were pointing out that Summers contradicted himself a lot. He presents a lot of false information as true. Mm-hmm. Um, he, misre- he misrepresents a lot of details. He makes th- details that people who barely knew her met her briefly once and being Mm -hmm. like this is her best friend and they said this Mm -hmm. like he just says a lot of things that are totally crazy and incorrect Mm -hmm. and i this was the point where i just was like i'm not writing about any more men yeah (laughs) writing any more books on this woman (laughs) i uh, i'm sick of your books i'm sick of this i need an amazing woman to come forward and write a book about her i mean i know gloria Steinem has and now i really want to read that yeah but i'm just apparently saying, it's like, out. i just looked it up apparently it's out of print and the book <sighs> is a direct response to norman mailer's book oh and it featured it, it focuses on instead of um marilyn monroe's like as a uh as a movie star about her as a cultural icon Ugh. and like on her person it focuses on her personality which thank you gloria Steinem. yeah like she was an amazing woman like we don't need to focus on this one thing that's not true yeah we like there's so much about her that we could be talking about that's great yeah and we don't need to be i think there's something to be said that like people some people are famous for the fact that they died Mm. like james dean Mm. i don't think i think james dean personally could have easily faded into oblivion if he hadn't died so young interesting you know not faded into oblivion but like there are so many movie stars of that era who, like, 
became really overpowered by the movie stars of the 80s and 90s and sort of yeah. just faded away. You know, like we don't, nobody can tell you how Gregory Peck or Cary Grant died. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, even though they were very famous movie stars, two movie stars that yeah. I really love. I know nothing about how they died. I don't know when Frank Sinatra died, like all these things. Yeah. Um, who's the, who's the movie star? Elizabeth Taylor died in like when we were in high school i'm pretty sure and it was like where'd she been you know <laughs> like she's still elizabeth taylor yeah but i think some people are famous for the fact that they died young and yeah, I think I agree. there's always gonna there's always gonna be the mystique around james dean there's always gonna be the mystique around marilyn monroe because people need an explanation about why they died so young sometimes there's just isn't one yeah yeah sometimes that's just how it is yeah you don't need to profit off of it as i'm at. i know it's that's very frustrating I think it also has to do with like these men need her need to save her by proving you know that she was yeah. murdered this idea that she was a victim and, right exactly know. that they can save her from herself or something which is dumb i agree i agree with your point that like trying to prove that she was murdered takes away the agency because mm-hmm. like it was her choice yeah and it was so funny because when I was starting writing all this, I was like, I bet it's going to talk. A-. Like, I didn't really know what the conspiracy theories were. I yeah. didn't know much about what people were saying about her death afterwards. So I went into this thinking like, oh, I bet a bunch of people are going to say a lot about her ex-husband. Yeah. And I bet this is going to be very heavily centered on um, JFK, who I thought she had an affair with. And mm-hmm. and then Joe DiMaggio and Arthur Miller. Like, I thought they were going to be big characters. And I was like intentionally being like, I'm gonna try and talk about her much more than them because this is her story yeah and i don't want to talk about the men that are yeah like controlling her life like it was her life she had her own yeah agency and all that and then i spent so much time writing down stuff about men doing stuff and i was like super frustrating i agree with you totally agree with you Mm mm-hmm (laughs) are you ready to move on yes this was everything i have on marilyn okay i'll let you leave this behind yes Um, especially because we're going to talk about more annoying white men later oh gosh i'm very sorry so for my reddit segment today which did i close it no i did not thank god (laughs) okay for my reddit segment today um, I actually want to talk about a New York Times article. So I hopped on Reddit this morning and there wasn't anything interesting. Yeah, maybe. So then I got on Twitter and I went to the trending page to be like, maybe I could talk about current events. Mm. And I didn't find a current event that I wanted to talk about because there's just a lot happening all of the time. But I found this very interesting New York Times article that compares two American history textbooks from two states, Texas and California. Oh. And it is fascinating. Um, it's a New York Times article. It was published yesterday. No, it was published today. Um, so it's from today's edition. Um, it was written by Dana Goldstein. Um, so thank you, Ms. Goldstein. Um, and essentially, it just points out some of the very interesting differences in um, history textbooks that really point mm-hmm. to the bipartisanship um, that's in the country and really illuminates, um, you know, how that how that partisanship is built from a young age um so that we maintain a polarized society yeah um so it tells you how the the article explains how textbooks are produced which is that authors um or who are often academics write a national version of each text that will be published in every state and i would like to say that the textbooks that are being compared same publisher same writer like they look the same yeah the content in it is still different 
Um, Publishers customize the books for states and large districts to meet local standards, often without input from the original author. Ah! Mm -hmm. So the publishers for each individual district can change what they want. And then state or district textbook reviewers go over each book and ask and ask publishers for further changes. So someone might look at it and say, like, I don't like the sentence in here that you wrote about slavery. Take it out or change it according to that district's specifications. This is like this is crazy to me. And then publishers revise their books and sell them to the districts in schools. I'm just going to talk about some of the differences that were noticed. Yeah. So California um, has in one of the one of the lines in the textbooks is movement and this is referring to the 1940s and 50s um and specifically um african americans and kind of being stuck in urban settings while everyone else was was moving to suburban settings um and the california textbook says movement of some white americans from cities to suburbs was driven by a desire to get away from more culturally diverse neighborhoods so california in in their textbook like really addresses the suburban dream of the 1950s was inaccessible to many african americans yeah it's important to point out texas does not mention this at all that isolating Mm. african american experience their textbooks also differ in explanations for white response to black advancement following the civil war both in the reconstruction era and housing discrimination um, all the way through to the 20th century according to a mcgraw hill textbook southern whites resisted the reconstruction because quote they did not want african-americans to have more rights but the texas edition also specifically states that um the white Americans were worried that the reforms would cost money and that would mean higher taxes. Whereas the California textbook um, is the only textbook that mentions um, that like that thought was selfish, essentially. Like the Texas, the Texas textbook is defending like the white people's rationale a lot more than the California textbook does. But California instead includes the primary source quotations from black historical figures about white resistance to civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, both states say that breaches of racial etiquette led to lynchings after Reconstruction, but only California, um, whose edition was written more recently, makes clear that the perpetrators of lynchings also hoped to discourage black political and economic power. Mm. So Texas is, doesn't go into the uncomfortable explanation of why white people wanted to kill black people. They just said like, oh, they were killing black people. Let's move on. Earlier in the article, they mentioned they show um, a breakdown of the articles of the Bill of Rights and the California textbook next to the Second Amendment is really clearly talks about gun control and how the Second Amendment has caused a lot of problems. In Texas, there is no bubble. There's not even an adage. It just, like, it's literally just the Second Amendment. And then the next, like, bubble fact bubble is about the Third Amendment. Uh, Isn't that crazy? It, just what? Oh, I know. I know the reasoning behind it. But just, like, you gotta know that it's not good to just literally be censoring information from children. It's true. It's true. So frustrating. I remember being told in seventh grade by my history teacher, um, like we were learning about the Civil War, I think, in a textbook, and she had found online a student in the South, I don't remember exactly what state, but they had posted that they were reading the exact same history book, mm-hmm. but it literally referred to the Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression. Yeah. And I was like, are you kidding? 
mean? <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy that that down to a district can change a textbook. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, California textbooks talk a lot more about queer um, gender and sexuality history that Texas textbooks do not. In the California textbook, there's a quote that says, um, the policies refuse to recognize the authority of, quote, two-spirit, what today we might consider lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender Native Americans who held special roles in some groups. Obviously, this is not talked about in Texas. That was specifically referring to Native American um, cultures and their treatment of LGBTQ people. The California states that the federal government failed to recognize non recognize non-binary gender identities and female leaders in its early relations with Native Americans. Um, Texas does not mention gender roles or gender identity in its discussion of efforts to Americanize Native Americans. In Texas textbooks, this is a quote, mentions of LGBTQ issues tend to be restricted to the coverage of events in recent decades, such as the Stonewall Uprising, the AIDS crisis, and debates over marriage rights. But for recent California editions, publishers wrote thousands of words of new text in response to the Fair Education Act, a law signed by Governor Brown in 2011, which requires schools to teach the contributions of LGBTQ people and disabled Americans, which is great. Yeah. The California textbook states that enslaved women face sexual violence from owners and overseers. The, text, the Texas textbook does not. California mentions the lavender scare that targeted thousands of gay men and lesbians. Mm. Um, California includes Alfred Kinsey's research on um, gender reassignment, um, and which challenged the post-war ideal on gender. Both states focus on women's fight against discrimination in the workplace, but only California said, talks about birth control and its role in allowing women to have greater control over family planning. Mm-hmm. Both textbooks talk about immigration and nativism. Um, obviously, that's a really major theme in all of American history. But California includes an excerpt from a novel about a Dominican-American family and their experience, which is like a primary source text. Um, Texas highlights the voice of a border patrol agent. Which I think is so messed up. I mean, it's interesting to know. I just think that that, that is such a clear distinction. Yeah. That, like, California has a primary source quote from a Dominican-American immigrant. Yeah. And Texas quotes a Border Patrol agent. Uh, like, that, I think that speaks volumes. That's why I found this article so interesting. In talking about famous... Um, American immigrants, only California states that some of them were immigrants. Some textbooks leave out that, like, influential Americans had immigrated. Oh. Um, California, the California textbook tells the story of Wong Kim Ark, whose 1898 Supreme Court case established birthright citizenship for the children of immigrants. Um, the Texas edition does not mention this case, but it does cover the Chinese Exclusion Act. So sad. Um, both obviously talk about big business and sort of the Gilded Age. Um, California's textbook is it has clear criticisms of wealth inequality um, and the impact of oil companies on mm-hmm. the American economy. Um, the Texas textbook freely celebrates enterprise and entrepreneurs um, like Andrew Carnegie, which when I learned about the Gilded Age and when I learned about um, especially people who were really big in steel mm-hmm. i definitely felt that it was celebrated living in yeah. pennsylvania and having steel steel and oil but especially steel were such a big part of the pennsylvania economy yeah. like to me those were celebrated people so it's in, learn growing up and learning more about them i was like ooh, <laughs> you know because in states well, where their contributions were deeply important in establishing that state's yeah. economy 
um, the framing of them is definitely super different. Um, older Texas editions highlight Republican critiques of President Barack Obama, while the California textbook discusses the threat of rising sea levels. <laughs> Like in the same space in the textbook, that's what's happening. Uh, it's so it's so infuriating. Um, those are really all of the the key differences that I noticed. But I think it was I, I just found this article so fascinating. Again, it's called the title of the article is Two States, Eight Textbooks, Two American Stories." Fascinating story by Dana Goldstein, published today about the difference uh. in educational structures in two of the most. Like, California is arguably the most liberal state, and Texas is arguably the most... Alabama, we, we have other states, but Texas is the most famously Republican state. Yeah. Um, and two states that have a huge number of electoral votes. So, I think it's important to note. It definitely um, is. Go read more. Go learn more. I, I just had no idea that that's how textbooks were written and distributed. So, that's also going to change the way I, like, look at textbooks from now on, too. Yeah. That, like, this was crafted specifically for where I am. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So, we're going to move on to me now. And I have to tell you, Jane, I was so disappointed. Oh, no. I really thought I was, like, ta- I was like I was, like, tamper-proof seals were invented as a result of crimes. There's got to be so many, like, weird random things that were invented as the result of crimes. I could find nothing. Nothing that, like, wasn't obvious, you know? Yeah. Like, obviously, police, like, things were invented. <laughs> but I was, like, I was, like, I'm going to find out that, like, aprons exist because of Jack the Ripper. Like, I was, <laughs> but no. I found nothing of the sort. I was furious. I was searching for hours looking for things. I could not find anything of interest. So, like, I'm going to give you some stuff, but it's not going to be a lot. Like, I feel very... It's okay. You, I feel like you just gave me a lot. Yeah. Like, that's why I wanted to get a kind of yeah. juicy Reddit segment. Yeah. Um, so very briefly, I'm going to tell, for those of you that don't know how tamper-proof seals specifically on medication were invented, I will mm-hmm. tell this, this true crime story and then Is we'll talk about the, more things. the Tylenol? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tamper-proof seals were invented as a result of the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders, mm-hmm. um, which is an unsolved serial killing that happened i don't i don't want to say that tamper-proof seals as a whole were invented as a result of this because the wikipedia page for tamper-proof seals informed me that um ways of proving that something was tampered with have existed since ancient egypt um starting with wax seals that's why they were invented oh my goodness um but this is specifically for over-the-counter it's okay this is specifically for over-the-counter medication Mm -hmm. in 1982 seven people died in the chicago area from taking tylenol acetaminophen that was laced with cyanide um there were also a series of copycat killings across the u.s following um with different medicines and poisons which i will briefly talk about at the end um, although no one was ever officially found guilty of these crimes, one man, James William Lewis, was found guilty of extortion and served 13 years in prison because he had sent a letter to Johnson & Johnson, who manufactured Tylenol, um, demanding $1 million to make the murder stop. There was never mm. any clear-cut evidence that he was the one committing the murders. They thought he was just taking advantage of the situation to get a $1 million. Yeah. Um, but in 2009, documents from the Department of Justice were released to the public that shared, quote, investigators concluded Lewis was responsible for the poison poisonings, despite the fact that they did not have enough evidence to charge him. So the Department of the Justice did think when this was going on that it was James William Lewis. Um, but in, to this day, they are still officially unsolved. 
Following this incident, product tampering was made a federal crime. Mm. In 1986, Stella Nickel was sentenced to 90 years in prison for tampering with Excedrin, which she laced with cyanide to kill her husband and a daughter. This is a good example of America does not have ex post facto law. Do you know what that means? No. It means that if something becomes a law after you've committed a crime, you cannot be convicted of that crime. Because it became a law after you had done it. because you technically didn't do anything illegal. You knew the laws. Yeah, exactly. So some countries have this. Some countries, if um, you cut off a person's hand, but that wasn't illegal, and then they caught you and made it illegal, you can go to jail for that crime because it's Mm -hmm. now illegal. Yeah. (laughs) But it wasn't... But America, it's like, well, it wasn't illegal at the time that you did it. The only cases where this gets a little wishy-washy, I found in my brief research on this, is in domestic violence cases and um, in sex offender cases. Mm -hmm. It became a really big deal when sex offender registries became a thing because sex offenders had already been convicted of the crime and this was not part of their, like, registering as a sex offender some of them argued that that was considered a punishment, but the Supreme Court ruled it as a non-punishment. So they were allowed to force them to do it, even though they had already, like, served their sentences or whatever. Yeah. So there is there is some, some what's it called, tension around ex post facto law, because some there are some cases where people are like, they should go to jail, even though it was, illegal, it was yeah. legal, all this stuff. Um, I wonder if there's, like, a... Like a certain type of thing that's that's like you can bring someone to court and just like say what they did and the jury can be like, well, that's messed up. Like, yeah, like if you harm someone in a way that's technically not illegal, but is very harmful to them. Is that just assault or it's really assault? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is interesting thinking about like at some point everybody had to do something for the first time, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this was the first time anybody had tampered with medicine. So also, I feel like someone had to do it for the first time, but then, like, there had to be a point where everyone was like, all right, we've had it. No more. No one's allowed to murder anymore, okay? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, it used to be really normal. Like, Before it was like, well, that guy we got to avoid, or, like, get, kick him out of town. I'm watching. Like, this is it. This you can't do it anymore, okay? This isn't a spoiler, really, at all, but I'm watching The Witcher, and, like, it's, yes, it's a medieval fantasy show, but, like, people just kill each other all of the time. Like, no, I I just can't imagine what that would be like, living in medieval times. It'd be like, you could murder someone and it didn't matter. Like, <laughs> me, if I was, like, queen. Why you, why y'all doing this? Well, that's because it's... Pro- <laughs> but also, like, think of how many, like, medieval stories are driven by revenge plots. It's like, no yeah. matter... No, like, there was no justice. Like, there was just people out for revenge. Like, that's it. Yeah. That was the whole criminal justice system. Being like, oh, well, he killed his, his horse and now he's gonna... Now he's out for revenge. Like... <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, if the person who did this with the Tylenol was ever caught, they could be charged for murder, but they wouldn't be able to be charged with product tampering, mm. which is a lesser crime, but now it is a, now it is a, considered a federal crime. Similarly, some economists believe that cell phones were responsible for 19 to 29% of the decline in homicides between 1990 and 2000. So I'm talking about something different now. Okay. Um, I know I just kind of skipped over, but like that was the, that was it with the Chicago all right, all right, all right. murders. That's, that's all there is. Now we have tamper-proof seals. Great. So always check that. Otherwise, your stuff might have cyanide in it. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so some people think that cell phones are responsible for um, the decline in 
specifically gang-related crimes in cities in the Mm. 90s. There was, in the 90s, a rapid decline in crime that has been unexplained. So economists and historians for years have tried to explain why this happened. Um, The invention of cell phones made territories less important in cities. In the 80s, most drug sales were based on turf. Um, However, cell phones allowed groups to move around, so the gang no longer needed to control a certain block to make sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so the they speculate that gang crime decreased because it mattered less where they were because cell phones allowed a new uh, new mobility for yeah. them. Um, inner gang conflict also became less frequent between them again because they they could just move. Like, yeah, it no longer meant like I have to be here to make these sales. They could go to their customer. Yeah, you know, it's the um, future. You know. Yeah. It's 2020. <laughs> it's 2020. I mean, this was the 90s, but yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are some obvious inventions in crime prevention um, involving the police force and the government. James Byrne and Gary Marks, who wrote an article that I read, split these inventions into two categories, hard and soft technologies involving crime prevention. Hard technology invented includes CCTV, street lighting, mm-hmm. citizen protection devices, metal detectors, yeah. ignition interlock systems, which is for drunk drivers, mm-hmm. um, new weapons and uniforms for the police force, computers and squad cars, dash cams, and fingerprinting machines. Mm-hmm. Soft technology it refers to software found in hard in hardware. Yeah. Um, such as sex offender registrations, risk assessments, profiling, racial facial recognition software. Ooh, racial recognition software. Ugh. <laughs> that probably that exists. Probably that makes exists. me uncomfortable. Mm. Um, crime mapping, criminal history database, Amber Alerts, and watch lists. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> but I have activity. Great. <laughs> So because I like felt so disappointed, I was like, I thought I was gonna cut and cover all this cool stuff. I thought I was gonna get all this cool information. I got like, nothing. <laughs> chairs exist because one time. Yeah, like I hit someone with the sofa. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking was gonna happen. Um, I, so I made a little game for you. Great. It's also true crime related because I just love talking about true crime. And you do. Can, That's great. It's a great time. Um, so we're gonna play a game. It's called Name That Murderer. Oh, no. I'm going to be bad at this. I don't know true crime like you do. I think you're going to know these. I did very famous people. Okay. So I'm gonna read... I still feel like I confused them all. Um, I'm going to read you a brief description of a person. Um, and I'm going to give you... It's going to be multiple choice. And you have to tell me who that person... Okay. Who that person is. This is also an experiment to show you how similar the description of every serial killer in America is. So like, I'm going to be white men? Yeah. They're just... <laughs> like, I think only one on this list is not a white man. A lady? No, I have no ladies on the list. There's only there's nice. only one or two like notorious female serial killers. Um, Haven't we talked about them? No. Yes. No, no. we talked about notorious female detectives. detectives. The opposite. <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> um, but you're gonna you're gonna know these, and for those of you at home, play along. <laughs> okay, this is the description of serial killer number one. An American serial killer who kidnapped, raped, and murdered numerous women and girls during the 1970s. Before his execution in 1989, he confessed to 30 homicides that he committed in seven states between 1974 and 1978. Would you like me to give you multiple choice? Yeah. A, Ted Bundy. B, the Golden State Killer. C, Ed Gein. Ted Bundy. That's absolutely correct. 
Fun fact, when investigating Ted Bundy, the police were using the new innovative strategy of compiling a database for the first time. Mm. When you first started talking, I thought you were going to say the Golden State Killer because you were like, rapes in the 70s. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah. And oh no. And then <laughs> They're when you all said he, so similar. And then when you said that he was um, put to death in 1989, I was like, never mind. <laughs> um I would just like to say that it really, it would have really sucked to live in California in the 60s and uh, yeah, 70s, apparently. according to all of these serial killers. Okay. Um, this killer operated in Northern California from at least the late 1960s to the early 1970s. The killer targeted four men and three women between the ages of 16 and 29, with two of the men surviving attempted murder. The killer sent four cryptograms to the Bay Area press, but only one was definitively, sol- definitively solved. A, H.H. Holmes, B, Jeffrey Dahmer, C, the Zodiac Killer. Zodiac. You are super correct. Um, Some of them, it's like their alias, and some of them, it's their name. Okay. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we don't know who the Zodiac is. Yeah, I was like, I don't know who it is. It's unsolved. (laughs) You want me to solve the Zodiac killings right now? Right now. (laughs) Um, okay, an American serial killer who raped, tortured, and murdered at least 33 teenage boys and young men between 1972 and 1978 in Cook County, Illinois. All known members, all known murders were committed inside his Norwood Park ranch house. He dressed up as Pogo the Clown or Patches the Clown, characters that he had created. A. Harold Chiffin. B. John Wayne Gacy. C. Charles Manson. John Wayne Gacy. Yes. Yeah! <laughs> I don't like that I'm celebrating this. Good job. Good job. <laughs> know your serial killers. See, I, everything, every time you start, my brain goes, is it Ed Gein? Is it Ed Gein? But it's not Ed Gein. It's never Ed Gein. While he confessed to 27 murders, only nine could possibly be confirmed, and several of the people he claimed to have murdered were still alive. This man operated primarily during the 1893 World's Fair. A, Edmund Kemper, B, Jack the Ripper, C, H.H. Holmes. Jack the Ripper? No. No! Um, H.H. Holmes. Yes, that is correct. Jack the Ripper operated in London. Right, right, right. H.H. Right. Holmes, When you yes. said World's Fair, my brain was like, oh, that sounds old-timey, but... H.H. Um, Holmes is one of my favorite serial killers mm-hmm. to read about. I read a book about him called Devil in the White City. It's very good. Fun fact, he is considered the first man to murder for life insurance. That's what he would do. He would get people to trust him, get them to sign over their life insurance policy to him, and then kill them. But convince their families that they weren't dead until, like, mm. they had given up, essentially. It was crazy. Dubbed the Night Stalker, this man was an American serial killer who killed at least 14 people and tortured dozens more before being captured in 1985. A, Jeffrey Dahmer. B, Richard Ramirez. C, the Golden State Killer. I don't... Oh, my brain wants to say Golden State Killer, but I I think it's, I think I'm wrong about that. So, Richard Ramirez. That's correct. Yeah! That was a trick question because the Golden State Killer was called the Golden State Killer because originally they thought it was a man named the original Night Stalker because mm-hmm. he did what the Night Stalker did before him, um, ONS and um, the Bay Area, the East Area Rapist, and then they combined them those two people together to create the Golden State Killer. Want to hear a joke? <laughs> that was a weird transition but sure how did the hipster burn his tongue how oh. because he drank his coffee before it was cool <laughs> i thought this was gonna be a murder joke no you were you were just like the original because he did it before that and that yeah. made me think of a sign yeah, yeah, i saw yeah, in yeah. a coffee shop which like sign. i feel so bad for richard ramirez that he didn't even get his own name 
it was just well because they discovered the original night stalker after the night stalker had happened so then they just tagged (laughs) really really the golden state killer got the short end of the stick because they he didn't get a new name but then richard ramirez made richard ramirez look unoriginal yeah (laughs) wow not that i sympathize yeah This man's crimes gathered widespread notoriety after authorities discovered he had exhumed corpses from local graveyards and fashioned trophies and keepsakes from their bones and skin. Mm. A, the Zodiac, B, Jack the Ripper, C, Ed Gein. Ed Gein. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. It's absolutely awful. Also known as the Son of Sam and the 44 Caliber Killer, he's an American serial killer who pleaded guilty to eight separate shooting attacks that began in New York City during the summer of 1976. A. David Berkowitz. B. Edmund Kemper. C. Harold Shipman. I don't know any of these names, but I have heard of the Son of Sam guy. Um, <laughs> that guy. I'm going to say the Kemper guy. No. Uh-huh. Uh, say the say all the names again. <laughs> David Berkowitz, Edmund Kemper, Harold Shipman. David Berkowitz. Yes. All right. Correct. Yeah. Fun fact: in response to the in response to the Son of Sam shootings, the New York State Legislature enacted new statutes known popularly as popularly, I can't talk um, as Son of Sam laws designed to keep criminals from profiting financially from the from publicity created by their crimes because mm. Son of Sam got wildly popular published books and made a ton of money. Oh, no. Yeah. So that became illegal after that. Good. But ex post facto law, they couldn't take away his money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's three more. An American serial killer and necrophile who murdered 10 people, including his paternal grandparents and mother. He is noted for his large size at 6 foot 9 inches and for his high <gasps> intellect possessing an IQ of 145. He was nicknamed the co-ed killer. A. Richard Speck. B. Jeffrey Dahmer. C. Edmund Kemper. See, I feel like the only name I've heard in that list is Jeffrey Dahmer. But my brain is picturing Jeffrey Dahmer as that ki- as that Teen Beach movie kid, Ross Lynch. <laughs> uh, my and he's not so six nine. No, he's not. <laughs> so Kemper, that is correct. All right, Edmund Kemper, you may know because he is the serial killer featured on Mindhunter because he's the guy that I haven't um, watched Mindhunter yet. Oh, I think you watched the first season. No, I might do that, though, while you're getting lipstick made. <laughs> <laughs> Fun activity. Um, Edmund Kemper, not the real guy, but an actor playing Edmund Kemper is um, a very, is a noteworthy character because he's the guy that um, Jonathan Groff's character goes and talks to mm. um, because it's all about them creating the term serial killer. And he's like the guy he talks to mm. about the idea of serial killings. And Edmund Kemper gives him a lot of help. From the inside. Mm-hmm. Edmund Kemper, this is some fun facts about him, is that he requested the death penalty, but he was convicted in California where there was no death penalty. Oh. Um, but And he is still alive <gasps> at the California Medical Facility. And he has, even though he's been up for parole, he said no, he wants to stay in jail. Oh, got remorse, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Um, an American domestic terrorist, anarchist, and former mathematics professor, he abandoned his academic career between 17, eight, 19, sorry, between 1978 and 1995, he killed three people in attempts to start a revolution using a nationwide bombing campaign, which targeted people involved with modern technology. Dennis Rader, the Unabomber, Gary Ridgway. Oh, 
The Unabomber. Yes. Also known as Ted Kaczynski. Oh. That was his name. See, if you had said Ted Kaczynski, I wouldn't have known. Yeah, I, I, th- I threw you a bone there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. Killed in 1994 by a fellow prison inmate, this man took the lives of 17 males between 1978 and 1991. He would lure men home with promises of money or sex, then strangle them to death. He would then engage in sex acts with the, corpus- with the corpses uh, hate that. Um, before dismembering them and depo- disposing of them, often keeping their skulls or genitals as souvenirs. He was sentenced to 16 life terms for his crimes. A, Jeffrey Dahmer. B, the Golden State Killer. C, Bobby Joe Long. Bobby Joe Long. No. This is Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) My friend didn't even hear you say Jeffrey Dahmer. I was just like, nope. I thought you would know Jeffrey Dahmer like the minute it hit you. I don't. I, I still don't really know much about him. My friend Dahmer isn't about him as a serial killer. It's about him as a teenager. But it's very good. I haven't watched it yet. It's very good. It's very, very well done. Ross Lynch is very creepy in it, and Alex Wolf does things. Ross Lynch is so cute in Sabrina, though. Oh, I like it. Like breaks my heart in two because he's so adorable as Harvey in Sabrina, and then he goes and plays Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> so so creepy. Um, that is my that is my name that murderer quiz. <laughs> Great, loved it. Woo! And that is my segment. That's all I have great i gave you know, everything i got i loved it thank you thank you i'm sorry i could not find anything else besides tamper proof seals and you and find things they were just things that we'd like you know knew about <laughs> <laughs> so i stated the obvious just no, in case. but like I, like halfway through i was like is she gonna say metal detectors like that one i know and then yeah. later you did and i was like <laughs> but maybe that's just you know everybody <laughs> Yeah, at some point. I mean, I, I like I, it does. This sounds obvious, but the, most things were invented because they needed it. Like very, <laughs> very few things were invented before we needed it. Hi, thanks you know? for having me on Shark Tank. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, but like they didn't invent metal detectors just in case. Like at some point, something happened, and they were like, "We should get something that detects that that's gonna yeah. be there." You know, like no one thought ahead. No one, no one's that proactive. No one's yeah. being like, you know what? We definitely need just in case. <laughs> When gu- like when guns were invented, yeah. gunproof vests. Like clearly there was a need. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I always wonder? What? Why have we stopped at gun at bulletproof vests? Why aren't we wearing like bulletproof shirts? Like are <laughs> in our society outfits? Like I get that they're heavy, they're heavy, but yeah. why can't we make the technology to have like you know outfits <laughs> that are Out. bulletproof? Which is That's sad a terrifying that reality to live in. I know, but I'm just saying, like, police need them. I think it's just because they're too heavy. Like, the vest still allows movement. Yeah. And it covers the critical areas. Yeah, the critical organs. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. You can still bleed out for getting shot in the leg. Yes, we know. <laughs> but hopefully... Bulletproof <laughs> shorts. Bulletproof shorts. <laughs> Bulletproof leggings. Um... <laughs> This is terrible. It really I hate is. this society. I, I hate do it. too. Oh my gosh. This is your episode of We Hate White Men. <laughs> we don't, but they are annoying. Um, you know what we mean. We, you know what we mean. Thank you if so we much. If meninists crawling at our door, I'll be like, I'm not worried about you. <laughs> I didn't make this to spare your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us straight on Anchor. There's a link in the bio of this episode. So fun. Um, anything helps. Or please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. That also very much helps. If you have something that you would like us to talk about, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com and we would love to incorporate it on our show okay sarah yeah before i ask the question um i'm gonna start this with a story that i saw this ad the other day on i think it was youtube but it was for this ring i forget the name of it it the commercial was so sexist it was basically for this ring that you can wear in place of a wedding ring that is stretchier and more sweatproof so you can wear it while working out. Oh, yeah. And the entire premise of the commercial was this woman who was at home chasing her children, cleaning her house, and furious that her husband was at the gym because she knows he takes his ring off at the gym and single women are going to like hit on him and he's going to cheat on her because he can't wear his wedding ring at the gym. So it was like, so now there's this ring he can wear. And I was like, maybe your husband could just not cheat on you. What? And, and maybe like... <laughs> I've seen this product before, but I've never seen this commercial. I w- it was so sexist and I was so annoyed at it. And... Uh, but then my second thought was, well, recently we had the whole outrage about the Peloton ad. <laughs> yes. And I was wondering if that ad was intentionally being sexist in order to cause an outrage like the Peloton outrage. Mm, good in order question. to gain attention to sell their product. Mm. So, Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering? What? Have there been a long history of intentionally insulting ads mm. in order to sell products. You know what they say, like, no PR is bad PR. Or, yeah. or not PR. Um, no attention is bad attention or whatever yeah. they say. No press is bad, bad press. press. No press is bad um, press. So, yeah, intentionally insulting ads. I'm going to be mm. furious as you talk about it. but Ooh. I'm excited. Yeah. It's also, like, kind of relevant because the Super Bowl's coming up. True. Very, very true. Yeah, this will be good. Mm. I'll absolutely talk about that. Great. Can't wait. Okay. So, Jane, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? Now, I'm not just asking you about this because I am going to make a lipstick today, but also because when I was researching, somehow... Oh, when I was on Reddit, I was reading a Reddit question that asked why humans' lips are pink and the rest of them aren't. (laughs) And it was, like, (laughs) this whole thing about, like... um, attraction for like mating purposes evolutionarily but then it mentioned that the egyptians were the first people to use lipstick and i was like i'm getting a lot of Mm. lipstick signs today which means i think it's time for me to ask you about the history of lipstick lipstick. i like that we've talked about specifically um specifically i want you to talk about the iconography of red Red lipstick lipstick. yes Mm that's been a big big thing great but just about lipsticks we've done eyeshadow we did eyeshadow a while ago we did real real towards the beginning real way towards the beginning and when i almost a year maybe maybe the first three i don't think it was even i don't think it was the first three it was but it was definitely in the first 10 yeah i know so it's been it's been a minute yeah (laughs) so i think it's time we talk about lipstick okay that's fun i'm excited (laughs) yeah i think you're gonna i think you're gonna enjoy that So that is everything. Thank you so much. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering.